Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Hey, I'm excited to share the message I have for you this morning. Um, I feel like the Lord is really been, has really been speaking through this series that we've been doing on parables. And so I'm going to continue in that series on parables. And the message I have for you today is called The Generous and Unfair Grace of God. What I'm going to start with today is a parable that illustrated an answer to a question. And so what I'm going to do first is actually we're going to read the parable and then we're going to read the question that was asked from Peter to Jesus. So a conversation, a dialogue that Peter had with Jesus. Now before we get into that, I want to remind you of something. And that is that when the original writers of the Bible penned the scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they did not write the Bible with chapters and verses. There were no chapter headings, there were no verses. So it was written, this is a narrative, this is a story that was written by Matthew. And as Matthew was writing this, he didn't stop and say, verse 26. All of that was added later so that we would be able to find kind of the address to where we were going. So I think that's really important because sometimes one chapter will lead right into the next chapter and the thought is a continuation. So this is a continuation of a thought and a story and then Jesus illustrates it with a parable. Now remember, parables are stories that Jesus used to illustrate a kingdom truth. And as I told you at the beginning when we started this series, parables are kind of like time bombs. Many times they go into our mind and they go into our heart, they lodge and they wait there kind of on a timer and then later, boom, truth comes to us and we go, wow, I didn't get that before. So we're going to look at a particular parable and it's in Matthew chapter 20 and it's in verses 1 through 16. We have a lot of scripture to read here. So it'll be on the screen or if you want to follow along in your own Bible, be it digital or paper, you can turn there right now. And let's look at... Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. Quick aside, the workday started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. So it's a 12-hour workday in this case, okay? So... He went out just before 6 a.m. and he hired these workers. Verse 3, when he went out about 9 in the morning, three hours later, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. About noon and about 3, he went out again and did the same thing. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, call the workers and give them their pay. Notice this, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired about five came, they each received one denarius. So when the first ones came, 
they assumed they would get more, but they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat. He replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. Selah. That's a particular word in the Psalms after a musical interlude and something profound is said and there would be kind of a stop point where with background music you would just be like, whoa. How many of you kind of felt that one go in? Right? Now let's look at the background. Let's look at the backstory, the text within the context. Matthew 19, 23 through 30, same continuation, no chapter break. This is what led to that story. Verse 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and they asked, then who can be saved? Why did they say that? Because in Jewish society at that time, in Hebrew society, if you had a lot of material goods, you were considered to be blessed by God. And if you didn't, if you lived in poverty, poverty you were considered to be cursed. So for them, material prosperity equaled the blessing of God. They believed, Peter and his friends would have believed that if a person was rich, it was because God was with them and for them. They looked at the pattern of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the patriarchs, and they saw that through Israel's history, when Israel served God, they were blessed materially, and when they did not, they were cursed, and they experienced terrible poverty and pain. So in their eyes, in their worldview, the blessing of God equaled prosperity. Now Jesus is flipping the script on them. He's turning their world upside down and he's telling them that it's very difficult for a rich person to get into the kingdom. And they're like, what? They can't even believe it. When the disciples heard this, verse 25, they were utterly astonished and they asked then, who can be saved? They're like, if a rich person who's obviously blessed by God can't be saved, we're all doomed. We're all damned. Verse 26, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now everybody in here with me, do, let's do a collective sigh. Let me tell you why. Because if you're in this room and your household income every year is somewhere around thirty dollars to $35,000 a year or more, you are in the top seven to eight out of ten people in the world wealth-wise. You are among the richest people in the world. You're in the top you know, 70 to 80 percentile. Did you know that? So a lot of us don't realize that because we live according to Western standards and we compare ourselves with one another, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. But if you live with more than $30,000, $35,000 of income a year, you are among the wealthiest people on planet Earth. So in some ways, most of us in this room 
would be considered to be rich people. Some of you right now are like, wait a minute, that ain't fair. So it's possible for you to get into the kingdom of heaven. I just want you to know that. Praise God, huh? Let's continue. Blah, blah, blah. Verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Verse 27, then Peter responded to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. So what will there be for us? Jesus said to him, said to them, truly I tell you in the renewal of all things, that word renewal is the Greek word palagenesis, which is the new genesis. So he's saying when creation is redone, when there's a new genesis, when there's a new beginning, when I recreate the heavens and the earth and I make everything right that's been wrong and I fix everything that's been broken, this is what will happen. When the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you will have, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. And by the way, a hundred times more is just Jesus speaking in hyperbole. He's not saying you'll get exactly a hundred times more. He's saying you're going to receive multiple times over what you've sacrificed for the sake of the kingdom. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, so now we're going to break this down and go through this, and we're going to look at the parable, but I wanted you to see the parable was told in response to the conversation Jesus and Peter and the disciples were just having. And that's really important to understand that text within the context. You understand that they're wrestling with material things. They're wrestling with what about our sacrifice and following you? Because we were fishermen or we, we were tax collectors. We were all these various professions and we've left it all now. We've left it behind and we're following you. What's going to come of our lives? And in that context, Jesus told that parable. And let's look at what he had to say. The first thing he said is what he repeats over and over again in these parables. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. And like I've told you before, the kingdom of heaven in the Bible and the kingdom of God are the same thing. God is the king, heaven is the country, and this parable illustrates something that is true of God's rule and reign. When God's in charge, this is what it looks like. So when God's in charge, Things often get turned upside down and they look much different than the system of the world in which we live. In the world in which we live, you look at this parable and some of it seems unfair. But God's ways often look unfair to human beings, even though God is the fairest of them all. Amen? And the kingdom of God is where things are right with God and each other and where God's shalom is and where there's joy. That's the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it says a landowner hired workers for his vineyard. Based upon what we know in the, and I guess you could say the surface reading of this particular parable, the landowner is like God. God owns the land, God owns the vineyard. It's his. The workers are those who serve God's people and God's purpose. This would include all the Old Testament prophets, the priests, those who served in some way, shape, or form God and His kingdom. And in the New Testament, the equippers, the ministers, you. By the way, did you know that you're serving in the vineyard? 
Let me just stop here really quick. All of you in this room, you may not realize it, but the workers in the vineyard are us. Okay, it's not someone else. It's not me. Even oh, I am one. But the workers in the vineyard are everybody who is contributing time, talents, treasures toward God's overall purpose. And if you're doing that in any way, shape, or form, you are the workers in his vineyard. Somebody say amen. amen. The vineyard is God's people and his purpose on earth. In the Old Testament, the vineyard was Israel. You see that in Isaiah 5, there's a whole story of a vineyard that God planted. And in the New Testament, we see that Jesus spoke to John in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. And we see that we have become the vineyard. Those who are grafted into Christ, into the chosen people of God, we have become the vineyard. So the vineyard of God is God's purpose, God's work in the earth, his people in the earth, and the spreading of his people in the earth and the plan of God. The workers, there were five different shifts, but one wage. There was the 6 a.m. early group, and the landowner kind of had a contract with them. They agreed upon a typical wage for a laborer, a denarius a day, and that was a fair wage. There was nothing unjust about that wage. It was exactly what hard workers in that day expected for a full day's work, so they got exactly what they had coming to them. The 9 a.m. early workers also agreed, or the landowner agreed to pay them whatever is right. I love the language, whatever is right. And then we had the 12 midday, and those are the ones that got paid the same as the 9 a.m. workers, the three in the afternoon. They were hired. They also got paid the same. And then those who came at the end of the day at 5 p.m., one hour before quitting time, there's nothing agreed upon. The landowner doesn't say anything to them. He just asks them why they weren't working, and they said because no one had hired them. So that's the setting. That's the background. And then he calls the foreman. The landowner calls the foreman. And he says, call the workers in and pay them. And we don't know who the foreman is here, but really in a lot of ways, the foreman plays kind of the role of Jesus with the father. He's doing the father's bidding. He's doing what the father wants him to do. And then he says this, pay the last first and the first last. And remember, at the end of Matthew 19, in the 30th verse, it says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So what does that mean? We'll get to that. The workers all received the same wages. The amount they received was the fair rate for a laborer, as I said, and was agreed upon by the workers who started the day. The workers who worked the longest were unhappy. Can anybody say amen? amen. Come on. What I love about the teaching of Jesus, what makes his teaching so profound is that he, it doesn't matter what generation you live in, it doesn't matter how far away we are from those biblical times, every one of us understands the idea that if you did, a, if you did 12 hours worth of work and then you watch somebody else come in the room and they worked for one hour and they got paid first and they lifted up their paycheck and said, woo, and you went, that's the same thing I'm going to get paid you wouldn't be happy about it. You'd be mad at the boss. And that's exactly what we have happening here. So what happened? It says, they assumed, it says this in the text, that they'd get more when they saw what the other workers received. They agreed upon their wages, yet assumed they'd receive more because those who worked one-twelfth of what they worked received the same wage. They complained to the landowner. Like Israel throughout the Old Testament, they complained about what they had received from God. And I just want to say this is the perpetual disease of God's people. 
and one we must be on guard against. Listen, if you find that your life is characterized by complaint rather than gratitude, that's a heart issue. That's a sickness inside, and it's a problem. It's something that really needs to be addressed with God because a complaining heart says something about your trust and your belief in God. It says something about the way you see the character of your maker. And uh, these men put in one hour. This is what they said. These men put in one hour and you made them equal to us. Think about that. That's the language. You made them equal to us. That's the language of self-righteousness, entitlement, and an accusation of God's character. You made them equal to us. And they're not. So the implication is they're not. Well, in that case, it kind of worked, Right? They'd work 12 hours and these guys only worked one. What is going on here? And then they say this, we bore the burden of the day and the burning heat. Though the statement is true, the wage was fair and they agreed upon the wage. The only reason they now noticed their hardship is because they compared their lot to others. This is true of human nature. Often we're happy until we see what others have. And I'm just going to, you know, stop here and I want to talk about this because this is a struggle of my own life. And I think most of us in this room at some point in our life, maybe multiple points in our life struggle with this, but I struggle with this. I mean, I've noticed in my own story, I can have, I'll just use church life. I can come to church on a Sunday and it'll be a great Sunday. Everyone's worshiping and the Lord's moving. The altars are full up here during prayer time. People are being prayed for. Tears, people being touched by the Holy Spirit. The worship's incredible. And I get to preach or I'll listen to somebody else preach and I just feel like God was there. And I'll leave here. Hi, we have an awesome church. It's incredible what God is doing here. I'm so glad to be a part of it. I feel just so like filled up and I'm driving home. I get home and I open up social media and you know, maybe that Sunday we've baptized 15 and I open up and here's a church and they baptized 30 and they posted it and they're bigger. And, and what happens is I go from this awareness of the goodness of God and being so content and so privileged to be a part of what he's doing and accepting what he's given me and not feeling the need to compare what I have with anyone else. And as soon as I see someone else out there that seems like they got it better than me, they're doing more than me, my heart goes toward envy, comparison. And the scripture, like over and over again, through Proverbs, through stories in the Old Testament, through parables, and then straight up the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians warns us, don't measure your life next to another. It's poison. It gets in you. It makes you sick. It's really bad for human beings. We're not created to do it, right? Now, that's my story. And uh, I've found over the years, and, and, and look at what they said. I mean, this is true too. I, I've thought about this one. I've been here for a really long time, and I've bore the heat of the day. Oh, you don't even know how hot it's been sometimes. <laughs> and the burden, and the weight of ministry, and the years of little, and the years not of plenty, but of struggle. In the years of wanting to quit, and then you people, some of you new people just come in and everything's great. Wow, you got it easy. You don't even have to work. You just come right into the blessing of God. I mean, you know what I'm saying. 
that's the nature of human beings. We always go to, and it's interesting, the psychology of it, whenever we go through comparison, we start with, you don't know how hard I've had it. So we not only compare the prosperity of the other, but we compare the hardship and difficulty of ourselves. And so I've had it so hard. You have no idea. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Right? And we go through that. All right. Am I stepping on any toes? Again, one of those messages where you don't want to say amen, you want to say, oh man. Okay. Now look at the landowner's response. He responds with grace and truth. Matthew 20, verses 13 through 16, look what he says. He says, he replied to one of them, friend. He starts with the word friend. Remember, this is supposed to be God's character. Friend. Friend, not enemy. You know, he could have just said, what, what are you complaining about? I gave you exactly, get out of my face. This is my vineyard. I'm the boss. Get out of here. I'll just take that wage away from you. You know, I have the power and the authority to do that. In that world, he could have. But he doesn't. He says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on a denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first last. How many of you know that's hard to argue with? You feel like that's, that's a mic drop moment. It's like you just say, Friend, I've done you no wrong. I paid you what we agreed upon. He's gracious. He's speaking truth. He's just and he's fair. Take what's yours and go. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to debate. It's done. There's no argument before God. I want to give the last man the same as I gave you. It's my land, my vineyard, my money, and my right to be generous. I have a right to do what I want with what is mine. God is sovereign and he doesn't answer to us. He owes us no explanation and he does not need to defend himself. Everything belongs to him and he can do whatever he wishes with what belongs to him. And I, I just want to stop here for a minute. I'm going to come back to this later, but we live in the time of the critic. All of us live in an age of incredible critiquing and criticizing. And we live in the time when everybody can post anything they want on social media, open up a YouTube channel, and your whole job can be, and we see it in the church all the time. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you something right now. You can take any teaching or any teacher or any church that's out there, and you can go and find teachers who will come against it, speak against it, critique it, tear it apart. Everybody out there knows what's right in their own sight. We live in the time of the critic. Very few of us approach things with a heart of, of being generous. I'm not talking about being naive. I'm not talking about being gullible. I'm not talking about accepting error, and I'm not talking about going down er, you know, into false doctrine. But I'm just saying so many of us approach truth, Scripture, God, our, our leaders, everything is approached from the standpoint of the critic. And we come with a critical eye. 
and we judge and we tear things apart and we nitpick. As Jesus said, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Right? You forget mercy and justice and love and you strain. That's the heart of a Pharisee. The Pharisee picked and nitpicked at the little things and found fault with everything. And we do it even in our time with God. We live in the era where God is on trial all the time. I hear people talk, it's like, wow, you're God and God's your... He, he's the, pl- not the plaintiff, the, he's the accused, right? And that's the way it is today. God is the accused and we are the prosecuting attorneys. And God's on trial in our culture. In the 60s, they decided God is dead. I don't know who decided that and who gave them God authority, but they decided it. Right? And it's a time we live now as well. And I, I love that right here, God's just like, I can do what I want. I'm God. There's actually a verse in the book of Isaiah that says that. I am the Lord. I do not change. I do what I want. Basically, you don't like it, lump it. Right? I'm sorry, but that's just the reality. And then he says this, are you jealous because I'm generous? The little, literal Greek means, is your eye evil because I'm good? And the evil eye was not only the concept of cursing someone with a look, but the evil eye was also the idea that the way you saw things was through a filter of being critical and judgmental. It's kind of the idea of the plank or the log in the eye while you try to take out a splinter in someone else's, right? Yeah, there's a splinter there, but how can I see a splinter if I've got a log, right? And so this was kind of what Jesus is addressing here in this, in this parable. Remember, the same God who is generous and shows favor to the undeserving also shows favor to you every day. At some time in life, you may be the one hired at the end of the day and in need of God's extra abundant generosity. We never know, right? Amen? And then he says, the last will be first and the first last. Matthew 20, 16 in the message says this, here it is again, the great reversal. I love that. The great reversal. Many of the first ending up last and the last first. You know, the great reversal is coming. So many surprises await us in this life and the life to come. Many who we thought were forgotten and left behind will shock us that God has raised them up. Those who never had much by way of material things, position, education, social status, or recognition will be rewarded with so much in the kingdom to come because they were faithful with what God gave them. So listen, you might be living a life right now that's really difficult. I think of some of the single moms I know. I mean, I'll tell you what. Single moms are, and many times are the heroes of the day. They got all these littles around them and they're juggling multiple things and they're trying to provide, they're trying to be dad and mom and do it all and it's painful and it's tiresome and it wears them down and I see their struggle. I see other people that I know that are just going through really hard times or out of work or whatever and the tendency is to go, if you're not careful, to go to that complaining mode and then the comparing mode. You complain, then you compare, and before you know it, God's not good to you, and God's just good to everybody else, and my lot is bad, and I just want to plead with you, please don't go there. 
your eye will become evil, you'll become blinded, it'll be like putting on a dark set of sunglasses and everything will be dark through it and you won't see rightly. But what I want to say to you is God is calling you with whatever you have and wherever you are and whatever's in your hand, be faithful right there and let God take care of the rest. And, and it's not the evidence that you've been walked by, passed by, rejected, or cast off. That's not what it's an evidence of at all. God's way in your life is going to ultimately have the last laugh. Many who are last will be first, and the first will be last. The great reversal is coming. God is faithful. He cares about you. So, I want to end with five big and important ideas out of the text. I've already said some of them, but here's what I want to end with. The first one is this. God is looking for people like you to join him in his kingdom work. God's still hiring. Right now, he's still hiring. And he's calling you. He's hiring you. Right? You don't need to do what I do to be a part of what he's doing. He's calling you to join him in his vineyard and to labor to bring forth eternal fruit in people's lives. It's the most important work on earth, and it's happening everywhere you are. Did you know that every one of you in this room, no matter where you work, no matter what you do, are in full-time ministry? That's what the Bible teaches. Are you a mom at home with your kids? That's full-time ministry. Boy, howdy. And that's ministry. And you will stand before God and be rewarded for that Stewardship, that part of the vineyard that you worked in. Are you a single mom struggling? You can't even figure out how you're going to make it. You never have time to really pray or read the Bible and you're tired and exhausted, not at night, but by noon. What you're doing counts. It matters. The Lord sees it and it's the work of the kingdom. Those children, those, those, that stewardship in front of you, that's the work of the vineyard. Do you work at a job that's difficult and you have a hard boss and hard people to work with and it's, you know, it's an atmosphere and an environment sometimes, the language is bad and there's all kinds of sketchy stuff going on and you're just trying to be faithful where you are? Let me tell you something, that is the work in the vineyard, that is the work of the kingdom, that counts, that matters. Your integrity is important, your testimony is important, the fact that you're a hard worker, that you don't complain that you don't get involved in office gossip. All of those things really are important and matter. That's your work in the vineyard. Come on, somebody. Secondly, God is true to his word and gives what he promises. God was fair to all the workers and will always be fair and pay us what is coming to us. Actually, we deserve judgment and owe a huge debt to God, yet he's more than fair. God's merciful to us. A lot of times when we're comparing, we don't remember what he kept us from, what he rescued us from, evil darkness, ultimate destruction, damnation, all of those, separation, whatever you want to call it. It's dark and it's bad, but he rescued us. He showed us mercy and grace. What is the difference? Mercy is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. And grace is when God gives you abundantly what you don't deserve. And he gives us both mercy and grace in abundance. Thirdly, God owns everything and can do what he wants with people 
and creation. And here's the thing, he's just and he's good. So what he wants to do is right and good. He's not evil. He's not bad. What he wants to do is what's best and what's good for people. Amen? This is an unpopular notion to most people today, the idea that God owns it all, he's sovereign. We see ourselves as sovereign and somehow believe that God owes us a good life. Everything visible and invisible is his. We exist for him and for his pleasure. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. Did you know that God doesn't need us? He didn't create us out of any need within himself. He is self-sufficient and self-existent. These are theological concepts about his nature and character. He has no need of anything outside of himself. So he didn't create us because he was lonely. He created us because just out of sheer love. The union within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the fact that God is love, and in that eternal love and that eternal union, He created out of His own nature and character and goodness because of love, but never because of need. God doesn't need us. We don't, listen, we don't give anything to God that He doesn't already have. We don't fulfill any itch inside of Him that needed to be scratched. God is completely self-existent, completely self-sufficient. And everything within him takes care of him. So that the very love we return to him, the very service we give to him, the very energy we live with, all came from him. So all we do, in effect, is return to him what he gave to us. It all just goes back. None of it issued from us. None of it grew in us. None of it came out of us. It was something he put within us. And we gave it back to him. That's why many theologians talk about not giving thanks, but returning thanks. Because thanks is something we return, not ultimately give. We can't give God anything, but we get to. And he loves it. Oh, man. Some of you are like, (laughs) Number four, God wants us to be content with what he gives us and not compare with others. I've already said this, but comparison is a trap. Don't do it. Celebrate what you have and what God's given to you. Learn contentment. Look away from others and look to God's gifts and to God. It all is about where you look. It's all about where you fix your gaze. What are you looking at? If you're looking at others, if you're over there on social media checking out what everybody else is doing and you're comparing your life with someone else's life, you're always going to end up discontented. But if you look vertical, quit the horizontal, go vertical. And you'll find, you'll be content and you'll rejoice in what God's given you and last. And this is where I started. God's grace is not fair. It's much better than fair and more generous than fair. It's not fair. It's better than fair. Amen? Amen. The New Bible Commentary says this. In their society, there was no welfare provision or trade unions. Unemployment meant starvation. The action of the landowner in employing these extra workers whom he he didn't really need so late in the day was an act of pure generosity. But even more extraordinary was the rate of pay, which made no economic sense and understandably provoked grumbling among those who felt unfairly treated. It was not unfair, of course. No one was underpaid. It was just that some were treated with unreasonable generosity. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. God's grace is not limited by our ideas of fairness. His gifts are far beyond what we deserve. 
And I commented here, one of the many elements of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that makes it so unique and so powerful is the grace of God. C.S. Lewis said in a convention on religion, he walked away from the room. When he came back in, they were having a debate. The debate was about what is the unique contribution of Christianity to other religions. C.S. Lewis said, oh, that's easy, grace. Because there's no other religion that has grace. Grace is this idea, not that you have to appease the gods in order to be loved and accepted, but that God chased us, loved us, pursued us, and gives favor toward us when we are undeserving. And that's what this is all about, right? God favors us and is infinitely generous with his kindness, his gifts, his salvation, and his love. In this story, the landowner pays the last workers much more than they deserve or could ever earn. Many times, God's grace looks unfair to us as people. It looks unfair to us as people we observe seem to get the kindness of God when they deserve much less. At those moments, it's good to remember that a day may come when you need the generous kindness of God toward you. I should remove the word may and say that a day will come when you need the generous kindness of God toward you. We're all going to get there. We all need His grace. His abundant, generous, overwhelming favor, kindness, gifts, and goodness to the undeserving. Yet He loves to share it. It's His good pleasure. So really the beauty of the parable and the, the center point of the parable is not the workers. It's the landowner. He's just good. He's just kind. Right? And every one of us, listen, every one of us need that kind of grace. And that's the grace that comes in the gospel. Think about it. The gospel. God became a man. Became human. Came down to this earth. Sat with us in our suffering, went through our pain with us, was rejected, experienced betrayal from his closest friend, denial from the rest of them, spit upon, beaten, beard ripped from his face, crown of thorns put in his head and beat into his skull, whipped with a cat of nine tails till his flesh was ripped from his body, put upon a Roman torture device and crucified, died there taking the sins of the world, absorbing into himself our sin, taking our debt and washing it away. Then being buried and tasting death for us. And then rising from the dead so he could share with us new life, a new creation, the beginning of all things being made new. So he could do that. And then favoring us. You're in son Daughter, heir, joint heir with Jesus Christ. All that belongs to Christ belongs to you. Seated in heavenly places, ruling and reigning for the eternities to come with Him. So that your momentary light affliction, the difficulty of this present moment and the little bit of it, cannot even be compared with the eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed in the age to come. So much for us. That's the generous favor of God. Will you stand with me? So you don't have to admit this, 